You know, when you sing a song like that about heaven, it's easy to think about how much you love God for what He is and what He's made for you. But we're actually going to be looking at a very challenging, thorny subject that most people don't like to talk about today. And starting talking about heaven and how heaven makes you love God more, we're actually going to talk about hell and how hell can make you love God more. Well, how is that even possible? I have some friends who are real strong Christians, strong Christian parents, taught their kids good, strong Christian theology. And they were struck that as their kids sort of went out on their own, got into their 20-somethings, got married, one of the first things they came back and said is, Dad, thanks for the love of God, thanks for the Jesus stuff. But that whole thing about there being a hell, a fiery hell, a judging God kind of hell... We've kind of thrown that out. We actually think you've interpreted the Bible wrong. We're not sure that's really true. And it certainly doesn't make Christianity very palatable. Fiery hell. And I think there's sort of a trend in Christendom that this doctrine seems unnecessary. It seems kind of embarrassing. Seems inconvenient. And so people are sort of throwing out the doctrine of hell. And the question, is that a good thing? Because it's a lot more palatable not to talk about Christianity without hell. Or actually, is it a bad thing? Rob Bell is kind of a famous speaker and pastor from Grand Rapids who wrote a book called Love Wins. And his premise as a pastor several years ago was, hey, everyone's going to stand before God and God's going to say, hey, here I am, here's the evidence, you reject me on earth, but now you see it and he gives them one last chance. And of course, everyone's going to accept the evidence when it's right there in front of them and ultimately love wins. Is that a good thing? Or is it a bad thing? Today, as we investigate this subject together, I want you to take a real rational view of this subject. And we're going to look at where did we even get the doctrine of hell? Why is it needed, if it is? And what did Jesus teach about it? Which is going to come out of Luke chapter 16. So it's going to take us a while to get to the passage. Kind of give a case for where we got it, why we need it, and then maybe what Jesus taught about it. I'll start with where did we get it? Well, where does Jesus get anything? Jesus gets it always from the Old Testament. One of the clearest passages from the Old Testament that speaks about not just hell but fiery hell is this idea that comes out of the book of Isaiah. The last chapter of Isaiah and the last verse of Isaiah, it's actually pretty clear. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men. So what happens when you die? That's what he's saying here. Who have transgressed against me. So he's talking about people who've died who did not get forgiven. They rebelled against me. For their worm does not die... And their fire, their fire is not quenched, and they shall be in an abhorrence to all flesh. So here it's saying at the end of life, those who reject God, two things happen. One, their worm does not die, which has kind of two possible interpretations. One, just like maggots kind of eat away at something forever and ever and ever, there's a constant eternal disintegration going on of them. And the same way there's a fire that can't be quenched that continues. And that fire from Isaiah is also indistinguishable. It just goes on forever. Well, in the book of Mark, when Jesus is asked to describe what happens in eternity, heaven and hell, he actually says, better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands go to hell, which is also the Hebrew word sheol or grave, into the fire... So again, he connects hell to fire. That shall never be quenched. He's quoting directly from Isaiah here. Where, and here's the quote, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now there's some commentators who believe the word word is actually referring to the person's conscience. 
this kind of ties into Romans chapter 2, that your eternity is not only this indistinguishable fire that's burning away evil, but also your conscience is constantly reminding you of how you rebelled against God, how you went against your own conscience. And so you have this, this conscience that's constantly accusing you or reminding you that what you're getting in hell is fair. In fact, nobody in hell feels like God was unfair to them. God can't be unfair. The very nature of who he is is fair. And so you have not only this, this indistinguishable fire burning away what's evil, but you actually have the constant awareness of your conscience, I'm getting what I deserve. So this is where Jesus got this idea. He got it out of Isaiah. There's many, many other passages, but there's the simplest one. And again, yeah, okay, well, jeesh, man. Do we even need this doctrine? Is this important to have this doctrine? So let's just take a moment and talk about why it's needed. Like, it just seems like something to be embarrassed about. I want to give you four reasons. I have five in your notes, so I'll cut it down to four. Four reasons why the idea of a fiery hell is actually helpful, very practical, in understanding God's work in the world and his work in your own life. The first reason is that a fiery hell teaches you about the love of God. What? No, no, that's why you get rid of that doctrine, because it doesn't seem like God's particularly loving. I want to try and show you that actually the doctrine of hell teaches you about the love of God. Becky Pippert has a great quote that I think sort of sets the stage for this. She says, We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. How could a deity who is perfect and loving ever be angry? But love detests what destroys the beloved. When you see something destroying someone you love, an act of love is to get mad at that thing. She says, the more a father loves his son, the more he hates in his son the drunkard, the liar, or the traitor that's distorting and destroying who he is and who is made to be. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. I don't care enough about you to address the bad things you're doing, the things you've allowed yourself to be taken over to. And so the idea is that if I could turn down hell a little bit and turn the fire down a little bit, that I would have a God who's more loving. I want to suggest the opposite. Imagine you wake up tomorrow and your spouse is right in your face. And your spouse says, you're okay, you're okay. Neighbor Bob took care of the fire. What? What, what fire? Well, last night you were pretty tired. You made some popcorn, old-fashioned style, with a jiffy pop for the kids and the neighbors. And you kind of went to bed early. And Bob came over to pick up his kids after they played some Monopoly. It turned out you, you left the flame on of the stove, kind of on low. And, you know, that could have caused a, a house fire. You're like... Really? A house fire? How do you feel about Bob, who came over to pick up his kids and turned off the stove? Thanks. Yeah, it's yeah, nice. I appreciate it. Are you overwhelmed with love uh, that your neighbor is such a great guy? Not really. Same scenario. You wake up. Your spouse is right there in your face. You're okay? Neighbor Bob took care of the fire. What fire? Well, you'll notice your body is covered in second, third degree burns. And you're in a hospital. Oh my goodness. And you realize you're wrapped up and you're covered up. 
Last night you went to bed early. And you left the stove on. And that stove caught fire to the kitchen. And the whole house was enraged with fire. Our neighbor Bob next door saw the fire. He knew you were still inside. Bob ran in and through the fire. Scooped up the kids and brought them outside. Bob then came into your room, pulled you out of bed. You'd actually already fallen asleep out of the carbon monoxide, uh, sort of going in the room and you're about to die. He yanked you out, fire. Here you are, you're alive today because of Bob. And you can see right there next to you is Bob, wrapped up in bandages because of what he did for you. Now how much do you appreciate the love of your neighbor Bob? He did that for you? He sacrificed that for you? He went through hell for you? When Jesus is on the cross, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you turn the fire down, oh, God loves everybody. Well, yeah, but he went through fire for you. He took on hell for you. Jude and Peter tell us that that he goes down and preached the spirits in hell on your behalf. He endured all of the consequences of all the wrongdoing of everybody's impartial, fair consequences were poured on him in the cross. Don't turn the fire down or you're not going to know how much he loved you. You're not going to have the sense in your heart that I have a God who came from heaven to earth and went through hell for me because he loves me that much. That's why this doctrine that seems so sticky and thorny is actually so important to understand the love of God. The second reason it's necessary is it tells you how much God loves free will. Free will is the basis of our even belief system. And hell is the answer to the request of the human being, I don't want to spend eternity with you. And God honors that request. But in order to honor that request, he had to create a place that he was not. So that when somebody says, I don't want to spend eternity with you, there's a place God can answer that request. Or when the religious person says, God, I don't need you to be my justifier. I'm plenty good myself. God gives everybody a fair trial. They get to get fair, impartial justice to see if their good deeds really are good enough. and If their bad deeds really aren't as bad as they think. And the religious person who says, I don't need you to be my justifier. I don't need your forgiveness. I'll do fine on my own. God creates a place. For them who don't want his free gift of forgiveness to answer their request for an eternity without being forgiven. And because God so respects free will, he created a place to honor that request. Third, hell actually shows you about the goodness of God. Because there's this kind of argument that you hear, maybe you've heard it, maybe you've even said it. I don't believe that a good God should judge anyone. Good people don't judge. Well, just imagine that scenario for a second and apply it to all the law, um, federal courts or, or local f- courts here in America. Is it a good judge who a rapist comes in, serial rapist, and says, well, you know what, bygones be bygones, you know, just try not to do it again. Is that good? Or is it because the judge is good, he does judge that as evil, and he does lock the person away with an impartial fair assessment of what they did for their own sake to keep them from destroying themselves even more and for letting that contaminant destroy other people, right? Good people do judge. And we couldn't even have a society if you didn't have good judges judging. 
And if you listen carefully, the same person who tells you that God shouldn't judge, about one paragraph later, they'll say, well, I don't really believe in a judging God. And a few minutes later, they'll say, why doesn't God do something about the problem of evil? So God shouldn't judge except when he doesn't judge soon enough. It's a two-sided coin. They want to hit God on both sides. He shouldn't ever judge, and then why doesn't he judge things quicker? Hell is the answer to that dilemma. Because God is far more gracious than we are. He waits and waits and waits, as Peter says, that all would come to repentance. He's far more merciful than we are, far more gracious than we are, far more forgiving than we are. And yet, he will eventually deal with evil. See, it's actually a good God who incinerates evil. God originally created hell, not for human beings, but to kill Satan and his fallen angels. And that makes sense, right? No, nobody objects to that. Like, God should destroy evil. That's a good thing. But here's the problem. We think evil's out there. And, and, and by the way, evil's not us. Oh, we know evil people. We've heard of evil people. But see, God says every aspect of evil is so bad, you don't even realize how bad it is. God's had to turn the incinerator up all the way on high, and it's going to have to burn for eternity to destroy how bad evil is. And you and I are attached to our trash, and God burns trash. Good judges burn trash, but we're still attached to our trash. So when Jesus came on the cross, he made a way to detach us from our trash so he could incinerate the evil and save that which is good. And that's where hell teaches you about God's goodness. He's going to burn up evil. And yet his goodness, he made a way that everyone can be detached from their own trash. Fourth, hell gives you a healthy fear about your own personal sins. If you look into the fire of this incinerator that's going to burn for eternity, and it's not just for the big things, murder and adultery. Now Jesus comes along and says, you've heard it said that, you know, Killing somebody's bad. Yeah, that should be burned up. But I tell you, even when you hate somebody in your heart, that is the seed that grows into murder. And the seed, the little seed of hating somebody in your heart is so potent and so deadly and so destructive, I've had to have an incinerator that will burn for eternity to destroy that seed. And so when you see the seed of hating somebody come into your heart, You better take it really seriously. You better look into the fire itself and say, this is so dangerous, that's the only way to take care of it. And I'm playing around with a little bit of hatred and unforgiveness in my heart. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you know, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, just the seeds of committing adultery in your heart, lusting after someone in your heart, that's the same seed. And you're playing around with that habit as if it's not a big deal and it's not hurting anybody. Because you don't realize how potent even the seed is. You need to look into the fire and look how seriously I take that and how serious it's going to take to destroy that. That will take over your life. It'll take over your marriage. It will destroy a society. It will destroy a world. Oh. Think of it like this. There's a knight who was uh, traveling along in an olden day and they came across a dragon cave. And the dragon was there. And of course, big battle and they slay the dragon. Pooh, it slumps over. And they're cheering on that they slayed the dragon. And, and they notice in the back of the cave is a dragon egg. Ooh, we should destroy the dragon egg. Except one of the knights is like, I think I'll take it home. He takes the, the dragon egg home and, and eventually the, the egg opens. Bloop. How comes 
little baby dragon. And he's like, I'm going to train it. And he does. He trains it. You know, he's, he's throwing a stick and the little dragon's going over and getting a stick and bringing it back. And he plays dead. And he's rolling over. And, and he's just loving it. And, and people are like, hey, listen, I don't think it's a good idea playing with a dragon. That thing's eventually going to grow up. It's, no, no, no. I can manage it. It's not a big deal. He sits at the end of my bed. He's so happy. Really, every once in a while he burps. You know, bloop, bloop, big fireball comes out. But, you know, I can handle it. I can manage it. It's, it's not your deal anyway. Well, sure enough, the dragon grows up. Gets unmanageable, burns the house down. Who could have seen that coming? And many of us have patterns and habits and thoughts, and we think we can manage them. It's not a big deal. Come on, don't get carried away. It's just happening in my house. It's just the end of my bed. It's really small. I'm a really good trainer. And then that thing blows up. That secret blows up and destroys our life. And we wonder, what happened? What happened is we didn't see the seriousness of even the seeds of it because we didn't take sin seriously. And hell actually gives you a motivation to go, I'm playing with fire here. I need to be very serious about realizing God forgave me for all of it and ask him to continue to empower me to overcome it based on his justification at the cross. Last illustration, we're getting what Jesus talked about. Often you'll see people go into an ecosystem. You know, a new society moves into a new area, and you come into an ecosystem, and you know, ecosystems are very balanced. You know, God created ecosystems, and, and certain things that you may not think have a purpose have a really high purpose. So as you come into an ecosystem, you're like, you know what I hate? Bees. Ah, oh, bees. What a, what a drag bees are. They sting people. They buzz. They're annoying. They drill holes in your deck. You know what we got to do? We got to get rid of the bees. And so you come in and you destroy the bees in a whole city, a whole country, a whole continent. Right, you get rid of the bees. Thank goodness we got rid of the bees. Next season, you start noticing something. The flowers aren't quite as many of them. Why? Well, the bees... They may sting, but they were used to pollinate the flowers. I didn't know that. And there's not the sweetness of honey anymore. Oh. And when you are in a theological ecosystem that you think throwing out something like the bees of hell is going to make things better, you don't realize the love of God wilts when you turn down the flame. The goodness of God wilts when you take out his justice. The goodness of God wilts. The seriousness of dealing with your own issues wilts. All because you got rid of the bees. I give you probably about ten more, but I don't think you ever get to hear a rational conversation as to why this is important doctrine. So that's why it's important. And now what did Jesus say about it? And so let's look at what Jesus said about that in Luke chapter 16, because it's pretty poignant. He comes to a final conclusion when he turns to his uh, Pharisees that he's talking to. He describes two characters in this story. And he's going to tell this rich man, remember, you can either receive your good things in this lifetime or you can receive your good things in the lifetime to come. That's going to be the premise of this either parable or story, depending on how you take it. You can receive your good things in your lifetime or you can receive your good things in the lifetime to come. Now, a quick reminder of where we are in the passage. Two weeks ago when I was speaking, we talked about a money changer, a really weird story about a shrewd money changer who prepared for the lifetime to come using his rewards and his relationships to build for himself rewards in the future. 
He wanted his good things in the life to come. Last week, Ben shared with us that the Pharisees were doing the opposite. The Pharisees were living for themselves and for their lifetime. All the credit now, all the money now. It's all about me, 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 me. And Jesus was so hammering on them for living for themselves. The Holy Spirit and Luke place this story that Jesus tells about hell right after these. The premise being, this is the story of a man who's going to receive nothing good in the lifetime to come. That's where all this is hooked together. Here's how the story goes. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. And notice the word certain. Jesus is not against rich people. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus support his ministry. He's good friends with Nicodemus, Joseph, Arimathea. All through the Bible, you see God working with people of great wealth, Abraham, Lot, Moses had great wealth, Nehemiah, David, Solomon. So God's not against wealth. But this certain rich man is not prioritizing his wealth and time in eternity correctly. So you could call him the rich man, you could call him the unprioritized man, because he's talking about a certain one who's living a certain way. So here's a man who's living for himself every day. But there was also a certain beggar named Lazarus. Not every beggar is good. This one was. But he's got a problem. Lazarus was full of sores. And he was laid at the rich man's gate. So every day he's going to go by the gate. And there's going to be a rich man. The rich man's going to have a poor man right there who's in pain. So there's a person who needs mercy and who needs help. And every day he's not even going to see him. He's just going to walk on past him. And, and this man is so desperate for food, he is desiring to be fed with just the crumbs that would fall off the rich man's table, just, just a little bit. But this man's so enamored with his own life, he can't see the needs for mercy of people around him, even to give a crumb. Now, the guy's in such bad shape at the gate that even the dogs feel bad for him. Even the dogs are like, well, we can't give any food, but man, you got some sores. They're licking at the sores, you know. So the irony of Jesus' story here is the dogs know what to do better than this man knows what to do because the dogs are thinking about comfort more than the man is thinking about comfort. And so the dogs are licking at the sores of Lazarus. So it was that the beggar died. And when he died, he was carried by the angels to a place called Abraham's bosom. Huh. We'll get back to that in a second. The rich man also ends up dying, and he was buried, but he ends up in a place that's tormented called Hades. It's also where we get the word hell. It's also where the Hebrews called it Sheol. So, Abraham's bosom, Hades, Sheol. Now, while this man is in Hades, or Sheol, he lifts up his eyes, and he sees Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, you think about, like, every time there's a joke, it's like, you know, uh, so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so walked in the bar. A rabbi, a pastor walk in, or they walk up to the pearly gates. And who's always at the pearly gates, right? It's St. Peter. Well, back in Jesus' day, if you told a saint, uh, who's at the pearly gates joke, it was always Abraham. Because they reference this idea of where you were prior to Jesus dying on the cross. You were in a place called Abraham's bosom. And so you didn't talk to St. Peter, you talked to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I see you. And I see you, Lazarus. I'm in torment here. Help me out. He goes on. He cried out and said, Father Abraham. Had many sons? Don't worry about that. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Now notice, 
for the first time in his life, he realizes he needs mercy. The word mercy means not getting what you deserve. His whole life, he never pondered he needed mercy. He was a self-made man. I don't need mercy. I don't need God's forgiveness. I don't need God's direction. I'll do fine. Thank you very much. But now on this side of eternity, for the first time ever, he realizes he needs mercy. Now, he needed mercy in the lifetime before. He just didn't ever open his eyes to it. Now his eyes are open to his own needs and the needs of others. He says, please, could you send Lazarus that he could just just dip the, the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue? Just one drop. Oh, I'd be so much better. For I am tormented in this flame. So again, we see this torment. We see flame. It's bad. But Abraham said, oh, son, remember, in your lifetime, you received your good things. You prioritized your life and not eternity, and you got credit. You got people's approval. You got comfort. You got your good things. You can have your good things now or later. You got your good things then. But because you didn't need God's forgiveness, because you didn't need God's priorities, because you didn't want to live in an other-centered way like this kingdom's all about, you received your good things in your lifetime, but now, not so much. And and Lazarus, quite the opposite. He had evil things happen, tough things happen in this life, but he prepared himself for eternity. He, He knew he needed mercy. And now, he gets his good things in the lifetime to come. He's comforted while you are tormented. And besides, even if he wanted to give you that drop, there is a, between us a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from here pass to us. So what's this guy going to do? And for the first time in his life, he's not thinking about himself. He's, I'll tell you what. Abraham, I, I got something I want you to do. I beg you, please, Abraham. Therefore, Father, would you send Lazarus? Can I let him come back from the grave and go back and talk to my father's house? I've got five brothers. I want Lazarus to go testify to them so that they will know what I now know. Lest they also come to this place of torment. There's always the joke, you know, hey, we're going to have a big old party in hell. And, you know, I hope all my friends are going to be there. But look at this story Jesus tells. The people in hell. And we haven't got to the lake of fire, by the way. We're just talking about hell for right now. The people in hell, it is so bad that they don't want anyone they know to end up there. And this is the temporary holding tank for the final judgment, as we'll see in a moment. Please, go tell everybody. It's, it's far worse. And, and if they had a little more evidence, maybe they would believe. Abraham said to him, hey, listen, listen. They did not lack evidence. They have Moses and the prophets. There's plenty of evidence that God gave for Moses and the prophets that we do not live up to our own standards, let alone God's. Therefore, let them hear the evidence they have. They don't need any more. No, 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 Father Abraham. If one goes them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. You got to imagine Jesus is like, this is foreshadowing. Don't give it away. 
I think there's this idea that anyone who gets judged by God lacked evidence. There's a powerful passage in Romans 2 that says, when you stand before God, you know who your prosecuting attorney is? Your own conscience. See, God wants to be your defense lawyer and defend you by saying, I paid for it all. So either Jesus is your defense attorney and you don't have to worry about any of this, or your own conscience accuses you of what you didn't do according to your own conscience. What could be more fair than that? God says, your standard of right and wrong that you used on others becomes the thing I use to evaluate you. If you don't hear about Jesus, I won't ask you about Jesus. I will only ask you if you lived up to your own standards and your own conscience will prosecute you. That's what Romans 2 tells us. So, here's where we end up, which gets us to a, a, a picture I showed you six months ago that's helpful in understanding the different components of the, the afterworld. So, prior to Jesus' death, because right now if you die, to be absent from the body, you immediately go to heaven is to be present with the Lord. But prior to Jesus' death, we're in a, a temporary time where there's a place called Abraham's bosom, or Sheol, or death, where both good and bad people went. You can't pray people from one side to the other. You can't you know, earn your way out of it. It was a temporary holding tank until Jesus came and paid the final payment. And there were two parts to it, Jesus says. Abraham's bosom were those who trusted in God, wanted his forgiveness, and were just awaiting the final payment of that on the cross. We're in Abraham's bosom. Some people think it's also called paradise, which is why Jesus turns to the criminal on the cross and says, today I will see you in paradise. And in the New Testament, it says Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison that he went and preached to or spoke to those who were in this holding tank to say, here's who you've been putting your faith in. Join me and I always go to heaven. But then there's another side of Abraham's bosom or Sheol called hell or Hades that's in torment. This is a temporary location because the great white throne judgment hasn't occurred yet. That is where in the great white throne judgment, you get a fair, impartial trial and those who... Um, rejected God's forgiveness, now get a fair trial, and that's where hell in Revelation is thrown into the lake of fire, the two different places. Unrelated, there's another holding tank we talked about when Jesus drove the demons out of the pigs called the abyss, also called the bottomless pit, also called the Tartarus, which is this prison cell God created for holding back evil Satan and evil spirits. So sometimes it's hard to figure out, because sometimes the Bible's referencing all this at once, sometimes the specifics. This is probably the clearest passage where Jesus has laid out these different components. And here's the point. Even this temporary location is bad, let alone the eternal incinerator for dealing with evil that God's made. So what are some applications here for us? Because I think there's several of them. Well, one of the questions is, is this a true story or a parable? Many people think it's a parable because Jesus, it says in Mark, always taught in parables. However, Jesus never uses real names in a parable. Lazarus' Hebrew name, name means, God has helped me. Jesus does reference real events, like the Tower of Siloam that fell on top of the people. So is this a parable story? Or is this a Jesus, prior to coming on earth, witnessed this one day, a rich man in Lazarus, and he's describing something he saw so that we can know what eternity is like? Not sure. I kind of lean toward it being a real vision. At the end of the day, it's clear whatever it is, Jesus wants us to know what eternity is like so that we can prepare for it. So with that, I think there's three applications I want us to look at. The first application is Jesus says to the rich man, or the unprioritized man, you can clothe yourself now, or you can clothe yourself later. 
You can get your good things in this life, make it all about you, or you can clothe yourself with what you're going to need for later in eternity. And this is why the main message of the Bible is to clothe yourself with the forgiveness of God. But you're never going to put on the forgiveness of God, his righteousness, his gift given to you, if you don't think you need it. The rich man didn't know he needed forgiveness or mercy. It wasn't until he crossed over that he knew he needed mercy. So one of the ways you pray, you prepare for eternity is you say, God, I'm going to put on your robe of righteousness and I can know for sure, not maybe, hopefully, no guilt, no shame, no condemnation, no worry about God covers me with his forgiveness. And then when you put on God's forgiveness, here's what happens. You realize you are in need of mercy and you start looking around the world for other people in need of mercy. You have an other-centered approach. It's not by works you're getting to heaven, but because of what he did for you, you've got a whole new mindset. You begin to look around and see people in need of mercy around you and say, I want to do unto you what God has already done unto me. You start living out your eternal life long before you get to heaven. The eternal life is an other-centered, others-focused, living-for-the-kingdom kind of lifestyle. And so the question is, are you clothing yourself for later? Are you living the kingdom even now? Do you know the story of the emperor's new clothes? If you haven't heard before, it's a great parable. I think it's Aesop. There was an emperor who wanted the best and best of everything. So these two salesmen came and they, they began to sell all of the clothes they had. And the emperor was buying it all. They bought their entire wardrobe and, and he still had money to burn. So the salesman looked into their rack and they had one hanger, whatever the equivalent back then of a hanger was. Nothing on it. I said, I got it. They pulled out this hanger with nothing on it. Oh, emperor, we do have one last piece of clothing that we got in the Far East. But only the smartest can even see it. Only the wisest can even envision. If people aren't wise enough or shrewd enough, they can't can't even see what I'm going to present. Oh, I'll be wise enough, the emperor said. So they brought out the robe. It was nothing. They said, oh, look at it. It's purple. Look at the material. Look at how soft it is. And the emperor, oh, yeah, wow, wow, yes, it's beautiful. They said, well, we'll strip off your clothes and let's put on your new clothes. So he stripped down naked and he put on the invisible Oh, you look great, your majesty. Put on the wonderful pants. And he put on the nothing pants. Oh, you look fantastic. So the naked emperor paid them for these beautiful clothes. And they said, oh, emperor, you need to go and show your whole kingdom how wonderful you look. So he got in a chariot. He called the whole kingdom together as he went back and forth through the kingdom displaying himself in all his beauty and all his might and all his birthday suit. And everybody cheered, oh, look at the emperor's new clothes. Wow, he looks fantastic. Until the end of the road, a young boy yelled out, emperor, you're naked. That's the southern version. You're naked. The boy doesn't get it. How could he not know he was naked? Because of his pride and arrogance. How many of us have clothed ourselves with all the things that our culture tells us are important? Reputation and status and people's approval. All good things, by the way. But we're naked in the eyes of eternity. Because we haven't clothed ourselves with a kingdom.
We haven't clothed ourselves with the other-centered life. And we're going to move from eternity, temporal, to eternity, eternal. And we're going to find out we're naked. Because we didn't prepare for what really mattered. If you want your good things later, you've got to clothe yourself for later. Secondly, you need to start seeing needs from afar. What's amazing is he did not see the beggar at his front gate every day. But now, when he's way, way, way back in the torments of Hades, suddenly he's got great eyesight. And it says he can see Abraham from afar off and he can see Lazarus from afar off. Suddenly his eyes are open to look for other people, to look for help, to look outside of himself. If you want to receive your good things, not just in this lifetime, but the lifetime to come, you've got to learn how to see needs from afar off. See the needs for patience when you want to be impatient. The needs for grace when you want to bring the hammer down. The needs for physical needs when you're focused on yourself. We've had teams for the last three weeks down in Belize, and one of the reasons we're so passionate about working here, near and far with those who are in need is not because helping poor people get you into heaven. It's because you were poor, and God was bountifully generous to you, adopting you and helping you. And since he did that to us, we want to see needs from afar. Cincinnati needs, happy church needs, back-to-back needs in Mexico and in Belize. So our village clinic goes village to village and helps people who don't have access to even basic care. Not because that gets us into heaven, but because we have a great physician who cared for us. So we want to go and do the same. We start the kingdom now. In fact, two weeks ago, there was a woman. She'd been praying for years that she might one day have a home. Her brother gave her a piece of land about the size of the stage. Not really because of her, but because her son, who's 90% blind, has been mute since age seven. She hoped maybe one day she'd get enough sticks together that she and her husband and son could live in a home. But he only makes $20 a day when he can even work in a cane field. Several months ago, Raphael, the man we work with, said, Americans are coming to build you a home. It was too big of a dream to think it could be true. But sure enough, Americans came in the name of Jesus to say, Our Father has built a home for us that neither rust nor moth can touch. We want to build you a home because you need it. And we want to show you that that's what our God does. So they built a home for this woman. And John sent me a little YouTube video that I didn't have time to upload for you, but it's just such a powerful moment of this woman standing by her new house with her new family, looking at folks from America, folks representing Jesus, folks representing this new kingdom and saying, you are an answer to prayer. You are a miracle. You have given me what I could not do for myself. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your generosity. What does it look like for you and I to see needs from afar off? And lastly, how do we remember Jesus' main principle? Remember, Jesus says, in your lifetime, you're going to receive good things. And it's not mutually exclusive, like, you know, you have to be miserable in this life in order to be good in the next. It's not mutually exclusive. But you say, am I only about my good things or am I utilizing my resources like the shrewd money changer to prepare for rewards and relationships in the future? That's what he's calling us to do. And it also speaks to the importance of evangelism. Because how important must it be 
to start conversations with people, to create services and to create environments and to, to bring up spiritual matters in ways that if a person who's sitting in the torment of hell wishes that someone would go back and tell his brothers, how much important must it be for you and I to find ways to create environments, to have real conversations because eternity is hanging in the balance. Remember, he says, my brothers just need a little bit more evidence. No. They need someone who's living with them now to show them what Moses said, to show them the prophets. And we've even got the advantage of one more piece of evidence to show. We actually have someone who came back from the dead who said, let me tell you what the other side is like. And God wants everyone. Not in this place he's not, but in this place he's prepared for everyone we know. Let's pray together. Maybe you want the confidence in knowing that you can spend eternity with God. You can just say this, God, forgive me for thinking my good works are adequate for heaven. I admit my bad deeds are far worse than I can imagine. And I receive your forgiveness and I receive your payment on the cross. And maybe if you've done that years ago, you want to say, God, in light of this talk today, I want to take even the seeds of sin in my life much more seriously. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. But deliver me from the power of rebellion in my own heart. Deliver me from the power of selfishness in my own heart. That I may live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here today for a heavy topic and hopefully an informative one. I want to let you know Ken Kington is with us tonight starting our second uh, phase of our men's study on authentic manhood. We invite you to be part of that. If you're a man, it's tonight as well as another session of it Monday morning. We'll see you all next week as we continue through the book of Luke.